All right, let's, let me pray one more time for us. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you for your truth, that everything you say is perfect and proves to be true again and again and again. And Lord, our text this morning is no different. So Father, would you watch over us, watch over me as I preach. Lord, help me in this moment to understand the task that is preaching your word, Lord, so that the people in this room will be able to hear without any interruption from me. Father, I pray that everyone would be enabled to listen, that everyone, by your grace, would be enabled to receive the truth of this word. Lord, we thank you so much for the book of Colossians we've been in now for eight weeks. We close this morning. Father, I pray that the words of this book would stay with us at all times for our hope, for our joy and peace in believing. God, would you be with us, I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning as we close our study of this letter to the Colossians, I just want us to consider that the church of Jesus Christ in the world today needs to keep asking itself if its priorities match the ones that were given to her by Christ in Scripture. What did the New Testament believe the greatest threat to the heart and soul of the church was? Was it the Roman Empire? Was it certain groups of sinners in the culture? What did the Apostle Paul believe the greatest danger facing the church of his day was? And through the Holy Spirit, what the greatest danger facing the church in every day was? By seeing what the New Testament is passionate to make clear and listening in particular because of how they were called to what Paul and Peter, which will begin, God willing, I think in two weeks, what they concern themselves with, we're faced with the fact that what burdened the apostles the most was what the churches, that the churches they planted and the people that had come to believe in Christ would lose sight of his sufficiency for us in the gospel. I think when you read, that's what comes out as their greatest concern. It was grace that these men fought and died for, the gospel of grace. And so the scariest thing for Paul, even as awful as it was, wasn't the Roman Empire, the fact that it was secular and pagan. It wasn't even culture, which was characterized at that time by all kinds of wickedness and idolatry that is so much like what we see around us and within us today. And the culture being oppressive and uncomfortable for Christians was not Paul's greatest concern. The scariest thing for Paul was that those who had believed in the gospel would start to think that the blood and righteousness of Jesus for us was not enough. That's why Paul writes, and that's the only battle the church is fighting today that is worth it if you put our fight up against the backdrop of eternity. What is the primary scheme of the devil in this world? Or what if the primary scheme of the devil in this world is what it has always been, what it was in the beginning, to get us to doubt the sufficiency and the truth of God's Word? And now even more specifically, now that that Word has been finalized and confirmed, now he wants us to doubt the final Word of God in Christ, that it is finished. This is what he's doing all the time. Did God really say that to believe in Christ is to have all your sins forgiven? Did God really say that? Did God really say that to believe in Him is to have all your debts paid? 
To have all of the righteousness of Christ given to you so that you never lack anything you need to stand accepted before God the Father. Did God really say those things? Is that really true? That even now all your failures and sins won't be able to separate you from His love? Is that really true? I think that's the burden that drove Paul. That they would stop believing those things. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wanted the Colossians and us today to be mature and to have assurance in the faith. A mature Christian is one who is able to look at all reality through eternal eyes and an assured Christian is one who knows that no matter what we do or do not do, we are accepted forever by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ for us. We need our eyes on the road that Jesus paved for us, beloved. Paul's closing words reminded the Colossian believers of how crucial their maturity and assurance were to him. And maturity and assurance in the believer's life are the result of an ever-increasing knowledge of Jesus and what he has accomplished. So now may we hear and believe God's word together. I'm going to begin in chapter 7 of Colossians chapter 4. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, If you were disciples, you couldn't have a guy in the group whose name was Jesus, right? You'd have to change it. We're going to go with justice for you. It's just too weird. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So these are the only Jewish men working with Paul in his mission. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So the whole purpose for which Colossians was written is found here again in verse 12. If you remember chapter 1, verse 9, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Chapter 1, verse 28, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And now here in 4.12, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Remember a man named Epaphras, had most likely planted the church that was there in Colossae. He continued to labor alongside Paul for the sake of the Colossian church. And when they were being troubled, or 
began to be troubled by some false teachers that wanted to take them back into the slavery of legalism through the law and man-made rules to get them to doubt the all-sufficiency of Christ for them, Epaphras brought word of that to Paul, and Paul wrote this beautiful letter for that church. And when you get to this part of it, it's the standard closing for the most part where Paul gives the believers there some information about his work, some final housekeeping items, even some greetings. But Paul reminds them one last time in his closing of what it is that's really at stake, the burden of their spiritual brother. Remember, Epaphras was one of them. What he always struggles for, it says, always struggles for in prayer on their behalf that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Which is everything that Paul has written here. That God has qualified them to share in the inheritance of all the saints. That God has delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom they have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That though they were once alienated from God, they've now been reconciled through the death of Jesus for them. The one who is the image of the invisible God, if you remember the creator of everything, the purpose for which everything exists, the head of the body, the church, the one risen from the dead, the one who's made peace between God and humans by his sacrifice, the glory of God's mystery, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, the one in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge because of him, because of what he has done. They don't need to let anybody pass judgment on them as these false teachers were for whether or not they belong in this kingdom based on their behavior. By believing in Jesus, by hearing Him proclaimed constantly, by holding fast to Him, they are accepted by God. By focusing on Jesus, then they put to death everything as God's beloved chosen ones that would keep their souls fixed on this world for their hope. So now whatever they do, no matter where they are in life, they do everything in the name of Jesus, their Savior, their Sanctifier and Lord and Shepherd. That's why Paul wrote, so that they would never stop believing that, that they would never stop understanding this is the will of God for them in Colossae and for believers everywhere. This is why Paul wrote, and this is the struggle of their brother Epaphras. It's always his struggle. It never changes for this man. Why? Why is this a struggle? Because it feels like, you know, it's Christianity 101. These are things every Christian just knows and should be believing. And But Epaphras is always struggling that they would, in his prayers, that they would keep believing these things. Beloved, it's a struggle. What we've read in this letter because we do not want to believe the gospel. We don't want to believe. Remember, these were believers. We don't want to believe that Jesus is enough. That doesn't come naturally. That doesn't come normally. It doesn't come easily. So there's a context to why he's struggling for them in prayer. We are all too quick to buy into other kinds of gospels to buy into even just small adjustments or additions to the gospel. Remember, it's, it's not a subtraction thing here that Paul was dealing with, just as it wasn't in Galatians. It's an addition thing. It's just little additions, little tweaks to the gospel. 
And yes, some of those philosophies and things can come from the world, but for Paul, most of his struggle came from people within the church. It's where false teaching that could be damaging to the church was usually coming from, was somebody in the church or somebody creeping into the church to try to teach their false doctrine. So it's so subtle, it's so dangerous. These are people that would say, yes, we absolutely need Jesus, but we also need to fill in the blank. Whatever it is. Yet now that we have Jesus, we have to live out this gospel, whatever that means. Right? I know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but if we aren't proving it all the time through this thing and that thing, if we can't measure our commitment or our work, then are we really saved? Are we doing everything we need to do to prove that we are Christians? That's how these things take root. Right? They play on the doubt that resides in us naturally that the story is too good to be true. We are naturally pretty much skeptical people. And if you get it, that's why we have the phrase, right? That if it's too good to be true, it probably is. That has traction because we all feel that way. And the older you get, the more skeptical and cynical you get. Because you just, you've been burnt too many times. Right? That's the human experience. And it's no different in the church. Right? These, these false teachings take root because there's something in people that lets them take root. This is why Epaphras is always struggling. There's a struggle because there is a war for the hope and faith of our souls, beloved. This struggle is a struggle for our maturity, for our assurance. That's where the battle for our souls is being fought. And the devil's whole war is to make us think the fight, the danger, is outside of us. Or at least that it has nothing to do with the hope of our own souls. That's something we don't need to worry about. That the enemy is in the culture. The biggest threat to the church is in the culture. The biggest threat to the church is in the government. In our political or our national enemies. But beloved, the Bible is too clear about this for us to think this way. And to carry all the baggage that comes along with it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Notice that we aren't fighting the present darkness. Our enemy is over the present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12, also written by Paul. The devil has us wrapped up in fighting symptoms while we ignore the disease. For this battle, Paul goes on to say that only the armor of God will suffice. So notice then, in Colossians 4, where Epaphras' battle is taking place for the people in Colossae, on his knees. He's always praying. That's where he struggles, in prayer. His fight is before God the Father to say, Oh God, I pray that you would grant spiritual growth and maturity to my family in Colossae. I'm begging you for it, God. They're being led astray by those who want them to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus for them. They're being tempted to try to feel more right with you by going back to the law and by obeying all kinds of man-made rules. They're considering finding their hope in lesser things than your son. And because of that, Father, they're plagued by doubt and by fear. And it has hamstrung their souls. 
Would you please move in and wash over them with the sufficiency of Jesus alone for them in the gospel. Grant them by grace the assurance they so desperately need. Help them to grow up into that. Help them to fix their minds on your son. This was Epaphras' constant struggle. Maturity and assurance in the faith are the result of a miracle then of God's grace in us. Do you see that? That's why it has to be prayed for. These things don't come naturally. They won't be taken hold of by simply attending the right classes or getting more serious about our commitment level or anything else that is earthly in its strategy. The struggle for us to grow up to the stature of understanding ourselves and our world through the lens of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us is a miracle. It is a spiritually attained goal. The struggle for us to actually believe in Jesus so much that our doubt no longer cripples us is a spiritually attained goal. Without grace, these things are not happening. That's why Epaphras struggles, because there is no technique he can just employ to make them mature. There's no easy fix. There's no quick fix. So it's a constant struggle. The threats to our maturity and assurance are constant. They are real. And what Colossians is showing us is they won't normally come from outside the church. They'll come from even well-meaning people within the church for the most part. Remember, the primary strategy of false doctrine that Paul concerned himself with in this letter was plausible arguments. That's what he called the false teaching, plausible arguments. They sound right. They sound wise. They sound good. They sound helpful. But they aren't the gospel. They aren't what will make us grow up for real. They might make us look better externally, but God is not measuring these things. Jesus has taken care of our stunted growth. So plausible arguments, these false teachings don't come from wolves that we know are wolves. Most plausible arguments will come from wolves that are dressed up like sheep or even just from other believers who are also immature and lack assurance, as all of us do. These closing sections, sometimes they can feel a little unnecessary when we read them, you know, for our, for our needs. Why is this inspired scripture? Why is this always going to be here and be read? Why are final goodbyes or little notes about travel that really only affected them and were relative to them? Why are we reading about those things? There's actually a name on this list, believe it or not, that is hugely important speaking to the necessity of why Paul is writing. It, look down at verse 14. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Now, listen to Philemon 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So this guy Demas was on Paul's team. Demas was on missionary journeys with Paul. He may have spent time in prison for the gospel with Paul. And at the end of Paul's life, when Paul was once more in prison for the last time, and he was cold, he's really very sad. He was cold. He asked his protege, if you will, Timothy, to bring him his, his books and his overcoat. They're in prison. In 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, Paul writes this. He says to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, there he is, in love with this present world, 
has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He was with Paul. Beloved, we gather every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night to fight for the hope of your soul so that you will not be lured away by this present world. Did you know that? Did you know that's what's going on when we gather here on Sundays, when we gather here on Wednesdays? At least That's what it is to me. We're at war right now. The truth of God's Word is hitting head-on right now everything in you that wants to doubt it and believe that there are other philosophies, other systems of truth, other people, other things that will heal all the brokenness inside of us and satisfy us and make us alive and give us hope. We are at war every time we gather and open God's Word. Because the lure is the world. And we are in the world. We're not of it, but we are in it all the time. Demas was lured away by his affection for the world. Notice the way Paul wrote that. Demas, in love with this present world. Now that, that needs to shake us when we hear it. Because what is normally motivating us and controlling our emotions and deciding whether or not we have peace or sorrow or turmoil, it's something in the world. It's what we love Beloved, it's what we love. I think the Bible teaches that what you hope in for identity and meaning and security and peace and happiness and joy is shown by what we love the most. We think being in love with this present world is always a matter of, you know, these, these horrible specific kinds of sins that we just give into. I, I, I don't know that that's always it. A lot of times it's just believing that this world can save us. That if we can twist and shape this world into what we think it should be, we'll be all right. That's a soul killer. That's a soul killer. Everything that you see is temporary. Everything. And it's passing away. It will not remain. Only Christ remains. Only Christ remains. When I see the greatest concerns of the church sometimes fixed on worldly things, worldly governments, empires, people. It shakes my sensibilities. Beloved, we're in danger all the time of the hope of our very souls being pulled away by loves other than Christ. Do you know that? Do you know that? And this fight isn't take, it's taking place in the spiritual realm for your soul. president said this past week I think on Monday that evangelicals in America were and I quote one election away from losing everything now I'm genuinely thankful and I mean that for any president who will genuinely fight to uphold the first amendment and the freedom of religion I believe in those things I'm very thankful for those things But do we believe that statement in the church? 
Do we believe that statement? That if the GOP loses in November, we've lost everything? I read an article that said, if an election can cause us to lose everything, what is it exactly that we have in the first place? Beloved, we're no different from any other age in the church. Did you know that? We're not above them because we live here. Did we really think that we would avoid what challenges the church in every age? Beloved, the world is watching. They're watching. And no, you and I can't be Jesus for anybody. But you have to understand that the world is watching and they're listening. What are we communicating to them? If we really think we lose everything in an election, our hope isn't in anything different than what our political opponents are hoping for. Because that's how they talk. If we don't win, we lose everything. Beloved, we don't lose everything if we get fed to the lions. We gain everything if we get fed to the lions. We go home for eternity. We lose everything, everything, beloved, when we preach or put our hope in a different gospel. That's when we lose everything. Believe that, beloved. Believe it. Do not be deceived this morning. Do not be deceived. To hope in Christ alone is not dangerous for us. It's the only hope that we have. What we need, beloved, is to grow in maturity and assurance. We don't technically need this world, or our government, for that matter, to do anything. We don't technically need that. Are we in love with this present world? Let me ask that same question another way. What do we fear losing the most? What are we most afraid to lose? These men and women believed in the power of the gospel so much and the ongoing need for it for every single person in the church that they went to prison for it. They went to prison for this struggle, not another one, this one. They wouldn't water down their message. They wouldn't stop proclaiming it. It superseded everything in their lives. When I, when I look out on the landscape of our country, I see the same thing you do. My greatest fear for my kids is not that they will lose the America I had growing up. My greatest fear for my kids is that they'll be lured away from the sufficiency of Christ by pining for something in the past by pining for a certain kind of world, which is what that is. I don't want to send my kids out into the world thinking that their hope is in changing it. Beloved, everything we can see was meant to pass away. It's meant to pass away. We can't make it stay. We have to believe this. We can't turn the world into something that God is not going to burn up in fiery judgment. It's not going to happen. We aren't going to undo the need for Jesus to return and set everything right. My message this morning is not, don't, don't care about America. Who cares? No, 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 no. That's not my message. 
my message is don't put your hope in it, regardless of what changes or doesn't. Beloved, we keep the peace as long as we possibly can, as long as it depends on us. But beloved, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. I don't think we can love the world the way that Jesus does until we stop needing something from the world. You know, if if we're going to love them genuinely, truly, then we have to stop needing things from them. Or whether or not we can love them is going to be based on whether or not they ever give it to us. And Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus wasn't like that. He rescued people. Please don't put your hope in anything but Christ. That's all we're talking about here. Please don't be deceived. Let's just let go of this world. Let's let go of it. We can't hold on to it forever anyway. It's passing away. Don't look to what is seen, beloved. Don't look to what is seen. That's what we do when we're immature. Remember? Maturity is when we see all of reality through the eyes of eternity in light of what is forever, not in light of the moment. To be mature is to know where our identity actually is, where our hope is. To know the difference between temporary and eternal. That's maturity. To have assurance is to know that who Jesus is and what He's done for us will hold us regardless of what we do and regardless of what the world does to us. And we desperately need both maturity and assurance according to this letter. So there is a struggle for the church to be engaged in and a conflict, Paul calls it, to be engaged in to proclaim Christ so that we may all stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Maturity and assurance are always going to be the result of prayer and in the practical realm of the deliberate, explicit, ongoing Christ-centeredness that is actively engaged in rejecting any threats to that exclusive centrality. Anything that isn't Jesus, even if it's the law, even if it's religion, is white noise for us. If it isn't useful for our maturity and assurance, which are only accomplished through the proclamation of Christ, we throw it out. Before you think that's crazy, I'm going to ask you one last time, if you have your Bible in front of you as we're going through Colossians, to turn back to the book of Galatians again. Galatians. It's three books back to the left. You're always wondering how to find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, or Colossians. Just remember, go eat popcorn. That acrostic will keep you in order. I want us to see that Paul was not only constantly caught up in this fight right, for Christ-centered maturity and assurance, which centered ultimately on the content of the message. I want us to see just how serious of an issue this was to Paul. Like, it isn't peripheral. I I, I pray that we'll be able to see that. I want us to peer a little more deeply into the depth of this struggle. Because that's what it was that Epaphras had and that Paul had. Let me read Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. 
Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, not to make us at home in it, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Not deny it, distort it. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. That doesn't mean let him have a rough time. That means let him rot in hell. That's what it means. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So the believers in Galatia, even more so than the ones in Colossae at this point, were being troubled by people, troubled by people who were distorting the gospel. And it was troubling them in Galatia. Making them doubt, threatening their assurance, shaking their identity. And Paul was furious. Right? Look over at chapter 5, verse 12 of Galatians. We'll put this under the category things I didn't know were actually in inspired Scripture. Right? Galatians chapter 5, verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you, who are troubling you, distorting the gospel of Christ, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. You know what emasculate means in the original Greek? Emasculate. That's precisely what Paul wishes those who are telling them, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. That's what they were teaching. And Paul says of those guys, you know what I wish they would do? The people that are troubling you and upsetting you and shaking your foundation in Christ, I wish they'd just go the whole way and emasculate themselves completely. That's the fire with which Paul desired those in his charge to never be troubled by a message that would make them question whether or not just Jesus was enough. That's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.12 Paul is not sinning here. It is good and right to hate any message that threatens our stability, our maturity, our assurance. And nothing is more worth fighting for in the church the integrity of the gospel and the sufficiency of Jesus for us. I've never heard anyone here speak or imply a false gospel. It's not why I'm preaching this. right? It, please understand, I did, there's not like an occasion that made me preach this text. This is where we are in Colossians. So I, I don't want us walking out of here this morning heavy that somebody in our church is preaching a false gospel. I've not heard that stated or implied by anyone at any time. So I'm not... I'm not talking about anyone in the church doing that. Please understand that. What I'm trying to say, what I'm, what I'm wanting to push, is how passionate Paul is about the exclusive message of the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. And that, that, that when we read that Epaphras was struggling, 
There's a reason for that. Like, this is a worthwhile fight. Like, like those of us that, that are charged with, with caring for the congregation, this is the fight that drives what we do. This is the fight. This is the constant danger. This is the constant threat. We gotta keep our eyes forward on Christ. This is the biggest threat to the people in our church. This is the biggest threat to your soul. This is the biggest threat to your hope that you won't believe Jesus is enough. That as you bump up the different trials and struggles of life, you'll be tempted and lured away by other promises of good news. Paul was so passionate about this. I mean, could you, that is an ama- Galatians 5.12 is an amazingly harsh statement. And it came from the Holy Spirit. Beloved, it is finished. You have to know that. It's finished. The fight for your salvation, it's over. Once and for all. Jesus finished it. The truth that is found in this book is always relevant, is always relevant for us. There's a contemporary Christian, for lack of a better term, magazine that's been out for several years called, it's called Relevant. And it's just, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you, you don't need to make relevant things relevant. You, you, you don't take a bath to get cleaned up, or you don't get cleaned up so you can take a bath, right? Like that's why you take the bath. You, you don't make Jesus relevant. He is relevant. And the reason Jesus is always relevant is that because Jesus is always sufficient. Everything that that would would pull you away, Christ is the answer for it. It doesn't matter what it is. Beloved, that applies to young people, to teenagers, to children, to young adults, to older adults. The threat against us is always the same in a different form. He's not enough. It's not good enough. It's not relevant right now. What I need is this. Jesus takes care of my eternal destiny. I'm having a really hard time at school. What do the two have to do with each other? You know? And that, that just gets exponential as we grow. Like, I understand that Jesus died for my sins. I understand that my eternal place is secure. But my kids are rebelling against me. What am I going to do? Those are legitimate questions. As we get older, Lord, I, I know that you died for my sins, but I'm not ready to die. I want you to take this cancer away. Where are you? Right? These are the questions. These are the issues that face us. And what the Bible keeps pulling us back to again and again and again is that if for one second, no matter what your struggle is, if you take your eyes off of the sufficiency and the love and the beauty of Christ for you, you are in trouble. And we're not just talking about the eternal side of that. We're talking about the stability of your soul now, today. Have any of us ever found lasting rest in a Savior other than Jesus? No. No. But they lure us away every time. I love it that He calls us sheep. It's not very complimentary. But the reason I love it is because He calls us, He calls Himself our shepherd, beloved. The greatest danger we face is always something to do with our soul's disposition to Jesus. Please understand that. That's always the biggest thing going on. The reason that Jesus is always relevant is that Jesus is always sufficient. Beloved, 
Don't let your hearts be troubled this morning. Don't. You know, we, we, yes, we live in extremely difficult times. I don't deny it for a second. But Jesus has overcome the world. Did you know that? Like this present world we're living in, He's overcome it. <laughs> Already. And He's ours. I am no Epaphras. I'm certainly not Paul. But I do hate adjustments to the gospel. I hate them. I hate them. And I don't hate them because, oh, I'm such, he's such a pure-hearted pastor. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. I hate them. Because if this gospel, as it is given to us from Jesus in the Word of God, is not the gospel, if there really is something, even something tiny, that I have to add to the finished work of Christ in order to actually be redeemed and accepted by God, I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. I'm undone if I'm responsible for a millimeter of my salvation. But I'm not. I need the gospel to be true. Every word of it. Forever. Or I'm out. We don't understand sometimes how badly we need one-way love and one-way grace to be true for our salvation to actually stick. And beloved, coming to that realization is what maturity and assurance are. That's what we're fighting for. That's why we proclaim Christ and nothing else. For me, for you. That's why. Paul says, remember my chains. Right? He doesn't want them to forget that he's sitting in prison for this unshakable belief in the value of his message and the worth of the one the message proclaims. Maturity and assurance all through Colossians in the believer's life are the result of an ever-increasing knowledge of Jesus and what he has accomplished. That's what this little letter wanted us to know. Nothing can make up for losing connection with the head. Nothing. He is sufficient for us. He's always relevant for us. He can't get left in the rearview mirror, beloved. The enemy is prowling. He hates us. He wants to devour us. He was defanged and declawed, put to open shame, as Colossians tells us, at the cross. But he is not harmless. And he knows that nothing will eat us alive like doubt. He knows the primary way to feed it is to get us to put our hope in something this world can give us. So we are under constant bombardment, beloved, with false gospels, false promises of good news. And information and news have never been more accessible than they are in our day and age. So, beloved, more than ever, set your mind on Christ. Look to Him. Set your mind on things above. He alone saves he alone forgives. He alone keeps. He alone is sufficient for us. That's the road He's paved for us. Don't believe anything else like you believe this. Keep your eyes on Christ. He is for us. And nothing can separate us from Him. Not even us. So this morning, if you struggle to believe that these things are true. You've believed them, but your prayer often is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And then one way to pursue healing for your soul, and that is to come forward and to pray. I'll be here. Others will, can come and help you pray if that's what you need or, or desire. If you're in this room this morning and you do not know the Jesus of whom we speak, He's not your Savior. He's not your Lord. He forgives sinners. If that's what you are, He is your Savior. And you can come to Him this morning and believe on Him. And He is yours forever. Nothing will be able to snatch you out of His hand. As we said, not even you. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front. If you want to come, it's open. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You so much for the truth of Your Son, Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would, as He passes by this morning, grab hold of His robe. Because, Father, He will not He will not take it away and keep walking. He will come near and bend down and listen. So, Father, I pray that we would remember the Jesus who's given to us in Scripture as we pray. And this I ask in His name and for His sake and ours in Him. Amen.